KYW Original Podcasts. King County, Washington is about half an hour away from Seattle. It's one of the places where the coronavirus has hit the U.S. the hardest. That's where the Life Care Center nursing home is. A number of people have passed away after contracting COVID-19 there. All right, let me just hit record here. Thank you so much again, seriously. No problem. Anything for family. King County is also where our producer, Charlotte Reese, has some family. Her cousin lives there. So, yeah, Sarah, I have to tell you, even some stores in our area, the hand sanitizers are gone. Soaps, you know, Clorex wipes, all that. Yeah, um, it's just it's it's weird. Just the fact that before, you know, the flu goes around every year that people weren't washing their hands, (laughs) obviously. And now they they suddenly are because of the mass hysteria. It's like people are preparing for the apocalypse or something. Um, But what I've read and what I've seen on social media and on the news is that the reason for that is people are afraid that there's going to be a complete city shutdown. No grocery delivery trucks are going to be coming in to our our city. So they're stocking up just in case. Right. Have you guys heard anything from the county or your community? The community, you know, hospitals, schools, the city leadership, they've all kind of made their statements of what they are doing. Like there's schools that were closed Monday and Tuesday to clean classrooms for, you know, because they had been, there had been reports of, you know, people that think they have it or being tested for it were on those campuses. Um, we're just taking it a day at a time. Thank you so much again, Sarah. You guys keep washing your hands and everything. Mm-hmm. Love you. All right. I'll Love you. you Take care. All right. All right. All right. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Hey, Charlotte. Hey, Carol. So it sounds like your cousins, they have a pretty good attitude, but yet there's some anxiety, obviously, in their community about this. And not only for them, I think, you know, people that know them, family, I know her mom, my aunt has been calling them worried. Uh, But then again, I think it's just the fact that we're all going to know somebody where a small outbreak is, whether it's in our country or overseas. That's just the reality of it. Coronavirus is rapidly spreading around the world. So just the facts. What do you need to know about COVID-19? And is the Philadelphia area prepared? This is KYW In-Depth. I'm Carol McKenzie. So Tom Rickert and I, the producer, our executive producer, hey, Tom. We traveled around the city and we talked to some experts about how it spread, what we know about it, what the city is doing to contain the spread if and when it does get here, and how the vaccine development is coming along. So, I'm ready when you guys are. Okay, so do you want me to read this, Tom, or can we just go into the interview and do this later, or do you want me to do it now? Do I do it now? Okay. So Dr. Harvey Rubin is an infectious disease specialist at the University of Pennsylvania. He has an incredibly long list of accomplishments under his belt, including his efforts with the city of Philadelphia to evaluate its pandemic preparedness. Dr. Rubin, thank you so much for joining us. We appreciate it. Thank you for coming. So you're an expert in infectious diseases. And of course, right now, everybody is talking about the coronavirus or COVID-19. Can you start by telling us how worried we should be? What are the odds that 
you or I or Tom or anyone here is going to get this? So I, I think we should be prepared, not panicked. And I think the odds depend very much on what you've been doing for the past month and what your level of exposure would be to patients who may or may not have this particular virus. A virus is called SARS-2. It causes the disease called COVID-19. So far, the risk in the United States appears to be low. More and more cases are being reported. More and more deaths, unfortunately, are being reported. There will be more cases as we get better and better diagnostics up and running. We have to understand the way the virus is spread um, and what the virus looks like if you do get infected. I'd like to note that when we came in, we did not shake hands. And in fact, you offered us (laughs) some hand sanitizer. (laughs) Who knows where you've been recently? (laughs) So that kind of goes along the lines of being prepared. How can we prepare ourselves for this? Right. So when, when people ask that question, I think of three levels of preparedness, what the individual can do what our communities can do, and what the government can do. So if we start with what the individual can do, keep washing your hands, keep your hands away from your face and your mouth and your eyes and your nose. The community can be prepared by understanding what the community responsibility would be if there is several outbreaks of this particular virus. And that's allowing people to work from home. It's understanding how their business, their school, their environment should prepare for uh, people having to stay home, take care of a kid, or stay out of work. The other thing we do recommend is that if you do get symptoms, fever, cough, chills, call your doctor and then let them know what your symptoms are before you go to their waiting room or the emergency room. So the community can be prepared to help the individual. What the government can do is get testing uh, kits out as best and as quickly as we can and then put in place countermeasures when they become available. And that usually means uh, everything from personal protective gear to eventually, eventually uh, antiviral agents and vaccines. What does the infection do? So it, it can be everything from just an upper respiratory tract, little sniffle and cough, all the way down to severe pneumonia. Uh, and and bad lung toxicity, and some people have even sent some diarrhea and other other uh, body fluids. But predominantly, the really sick people are getting bad pneumonias. What do we know at this point about how it's transmitted? So we know it's person to person. What we don't yet really know is whether it's droplet or aerosol. Droplets are bigger particles. They drop to the, literally drop to the floor, and the air is cleared. So if I have it now, you would be exposed. I don't, but uh, <laughs> but if if you left the room and I left the room, then then if it's droplets, they're all heavy. They drop to the floor. The room would be relatively easy. If it's aerosolized, if somebody else comes into the room, well, then they'll be exposed. So that aerosolized is much more spreadable than droplets, and that's why when you see pictures of people evacuating other folks, they've got full protective gear on. And that's because there is this possibility that it's floating around in the air, not dropping to the floor. Do we know if people are contagious when they're asymptomatic? Uh, It appears that they are. It appears that they are. And and that that information is still emerging. So right now, how do you treat somebody who might have It's now supportive care. Hydration, making sure that you're you're, um, – get enough respiratory support if you really do need a ventilator, making sure the clinicians and everybody involved is protected, um, but supportive care. There's been a lot of talk of masks. Do they work? Do they not work? 
Can they help? The official recommendation is not to run out and buy masks. The mask that will work is so-called N95 masks. We really want to use those for people who are healthcare professionals, first responders. Not that we think healthcare providers are more important than kindergarten teachers, but uh, we need to make sure that the healthcare team isn't part of spreading the disease. So N95 now is really quite difficult to get a hold of because there have been some inappropriate and, and panic buying. Um, so we really want to keep that in, in hold of a response to the first responders. We see pictures, though, people in cities particularly where they have a number of cases wearing just the regular masks and... Um, yeah, not recommended. Why? First of all, I mean, do they stop the virus? Do they stop because that have to be certain kinds of masks, um, and then they're not reusable either. (laughs) So that you, it's really a one thing, and you and you toss it. So uh, it's it's really a very little value. So there's been a problem getting proper test kits. Where are we with that? Yeah. So these test kits have to what we call point of care. It's really important to know as quickly as you can whether the person you're seeing in your clinic or in the emergency room has this particular viral infection. From what I understand, there will be many, many more tests available in in the millions. What's really important in tests are the number of false positives and the number of false negatives. So these tests have to be validated after a certain period of time. And that's really important. How long does that take, that validation? Well, you know, it depends on what the gold standard is. And so we're trying to say this test is now going to determine if you have coronavirus. So we need a series of gold standards to compare these tests to. And so that'll take some time. That'll probably take at least two weeks, I would imagine. Right now we have some numbers. Uh, These will probably be out of date by the time this podcast comes out. But one estimate shows more than 90,000 people around the world have contracted the virus. 3,000 have died. But then the question becomes, if we don't have proper test kits and we cannot definitively say whether a person does or does not have coronavirus, how can we determine how how widespread it is, how lethal it is? You're right. We don't know the, the definitive numbers yet. We don't know what the mortality rate is. We don't know um, how many people have been exposed and it just have subclinical disease. Uh, those numbers will start coming out. And we have to follow the science. We, we can't. There will be more for sure. But that's interesting because I've heard the mortality right now has been 2% and they're talking the regular flu is what, 0.1%. And so they were saying even if it comes down a percent, it's still lethal. But yeah. do we really know that? We don't know that yet, for sure. The, the, the generally accepted number for flu is 0.1%. But the numbers for flu are vastly exceed the numbers for coronavirus. We just have to wait and see what these numbers uh, come out to be. We have seen the people who have sadly died from this. Can you tell us about that population? So the general understanding is that it's folks who have pre-existing illnesses that could that could set them up for uh, an overwhelming viral infection. It somehow appears that children are a little bit maybe more protected than than some of the older patients that we have. But then there are some people that 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 have died without any pre-existing conditions. And so I think we're still learning. Why are children less susceptible? It's a great question. We don't really know the answer. There have been a couple of theories. One is that um, it is still a coronavirus. There's no 
absolute cross-protection, but kids get colds all the time. And it could be that there's a little bit of cross-protection from their previous cold, with, from maybe coronavirus. It could be that kids don't have the same robust immune response that adults might have, so that they don't get the cytokine, what we call cytokine storms. And it's not so much the viral infection, but it's the host response to the infection. So, but but nobody re- nobody really knows for sure. What is your prediction? I mean, what do you think is going to happen here? Well, in in 40 years of doing this, I don't like to predict too much about infectious diseases because it always surprises you. Um, I would not be at all surprised if we do see cases in in major metropolitan cities. It's it's still emerging. This is clearly an emerging infectious disease. Dr. Rubin, thank you so much for joining us on KYW In-Depth. We really appreciate your expertise. Well, thank you. I think what you're doing is very important. It's important to get the right information out as, as broadly as we can. Um, may I take a photo of you? Sure. I would have worn my, uh, right. my, bow, my bow tie. So the other half of this question that we went into this needing to get answered is – how is Philly specifically, how is this area preparing for coronavirus? And the guy to talk to about that is Dr. Stephen Alice. He's in charge of coordinating the city's response to coronavirus. He sat down with us at his conference table and told us, All right. okay, you know, <laughs> basically they're ready to go. <laughs> Dr. Stephen Alice is the director of disease control in the city's public health department. Um, so you are coordinating the city's response to COVID-19. Can you tell us a little bit about what that entails, where you are in the process right now? So right now, we're all about detection and containment to look and find first cases and then to uh, do contact tracing of those cases, interview them, see where they have been, who they've been in contact with, and then to look at those other people that may have been exposed to those cases and to follow them to see if they develop symptoms. And if they do, test them immediately and then to isolate them from the community to control spread. How long have you been doing this? I've been working for the city's health department for 16 years, and I've been the director of disease control for three years. Prior to that, I was the manager of the bioterrorism and public health preparedness program for nine years before that. Should we be worried about this? Should we be worried about when this this is going to get here and what the response is going to be like? I think the answer to should we be worried about this is yes. So it's an infectious disease that is spreading around our world like we are should be concerned about seasonal influenza. So there are infectious diseases that affect our community every year and cause pandemics and cause some people to get severely ill and die. It's just a lot more attention is being paid to it now with respect to COVID-19 because we really don't want this to get out of control. And there is an element of unknown with this disease. Seasonal flu, we have it every year for so many years that it's somewhat predictable what it does and how how long it stays in our community. But with COVID-19, we don't really know in the coming weeks and months that are ahead, how long will this be with us? Will it go away when the warm weather comes and when summer is here? Will it come back next winter? We just don't have answers to all of that. So controlling it now is, we think, is best. There's been a lot of discussion about test kits, things like that. So does Philadelphia have what it needs? Do you have test kits? Do you have a way of um, definitively diagnosing people? We do. So initially, when this started, uh, tests were being done at the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, the CDC in Atlanta, Georgia. And all of our suspect cases, their specimens had to be sent down to Atlanta through an approval process through us and our state health department and CDC. 
Now we have um, more an expanded access to the test kits and the reagents that are now in the public health laboratories in each state. And so in Pennsylvania, there's our lab here that has uh, the ability to do the testing. So our ability to test more people has become available to us. And then what about the the medical community? Do you coordinate that the hospitals and what their protocol is going to be? Are we are we ready for this? Any kind of a I guess if it reaches kind of epidemic, pandemic portion. Yeah, lots of questions there. <laughs> so I'll take it one step at a time. Yeah. And so yes is the answer to coordinating with hospitals with respect to identifying initial cases and testing those initial cases. And then other important uh, response activities have to happen in the healthcare setting when there's a suspect or confirmed case. And those things include how to protect healthcare workers. So, what kinds of protective equipment healthcare workers might use around a suspect patient? What kind of an environment in the hospital such a patient should be in? And that's right now uh, we use negative pressure airborne settings, rooms where the um, the air circulation is controlled so that um, virus won't spread outside of a patient care area. So that's for managing patients one at a time in those settings. But as we expect patients to expand with this disease in healthcare settings, hospitals have robust preparedness plans in place to expand their ability to care for patients like this. So two years ago, 2017, 2018, that winter season, excellent year as an example of a bad flu year where our local hospitals here and around the country had to expand where they provided care services to patients presenting with flu-like illness in other areas outside of their ED. And so that was a really good test. And a lot of hospitals here, we have good confidence, have the ability to expand care services like that. And that was my next question, because this is a large metropolitan area. We have people commuting in, commuting in and out of the city. So do you have coordinated efforts with the surrounding communities, the surrounding counties? Yes. How does that work? So it works in a number of ways. And so disease control activities in public health are are broken down by different sectors based on how we're funded through CDC primarily. And so one area is communicable disease control. And so our colleagues in, say, our suburban counties like Montgomery County, Bucks County, Chester County, et cetera, and even our colleagues in New Jersey across the river, we talk to each other pretty frequently about cases that we have and how we're handling different cases. Because even routine outbreaks like E. coli, in a restaurant or a restaurant chain, those are regional outbreaks often, and we have to talk to them about how we're handling cases like that. But another area in public health disease control would be emergency preparedness and public health emergency response. And so that unit I used to manage uh, has a robust regional public health work group that includes the state of Delaware, Maryland, New Jersey, and Pennsylvania, and the 11 counties all affiliated with the Philadelphia Metropolitan Statistical Area. So they have frequent meetings around planning for events like this and bioterrorist incidents like anthrax, and they do trainings and exercises, some on very big scales. In fact, we just completed a big full-scale exercise in the whole 11-county, four-state region this past October around an anthrax scenario. We have heard warnings that schools might have to shut down, you might have to work from home, and then here you think about all the people who use mass transit. Um, What would that look like if it got to that level here? Yeah. So we're hoping it doesn't get to that level, and it may not, 
But if it does, I think the idea that schools might close, not necessarily because of recommendations to prevent transmission in schools, but it may be that the workforce, teachers, or people start calling out because whatever reason. If that were to happen, and that might apply to public transportation, where we we might see a reduction in trains or bus service. And so it's really critical for all businesses, and we're doing this as city government, to look at what are our essential business functions and to decide what must we do every day as an organization that we can't put off and what can we put off? Services that we do on a regular basis, but maybe we can delay for a week or two and then take those staff and other resources from those other services and move them into the critical business services, cross-train essential staff to do different things they may not do on a daily basis but can support our essential operations. And so an example for the health department would be to see patients in city health centers for our ambulatory health division. That's a service that we can't suspend. People still will have other important health conditions that they need to be seen on on a regular basis. Have you talked with the school district at all? We have. Yes. And so we work with the school district on a regular basis around immunizations. That's a a big program in my division. And so we are talking to them now about how we might handle our first cases. If it's in a a student that attends school, if it's in a teacher, what might might we do and how might best we would do something like uh, messaging to parents, uh, closure of a particular school, environmental cleaning of such a school if we thought that was something that would be useful. But I had a conversation last week with one of their chief executive officers about our strategy. One of the things I would think that would be challenging is there we, there's such a large population, but it's such a diverse population. So how do you handle that? How do you make sure the message gets to everybody? So we do a lot of preparedness work, not just ourselves, the health department, our Office of Emergency Management and other partners. We have abilities to communicate with service provider agencies we know quite well that serve a variety of different populations. So people with uh, physical disabilities, learning disabilities, uh, behavioral health disabilities, but also uh, differences in culture, ethnic uh, diversity, or other uh, immigrant populations that we have here in Philadelphia. So we have a robust knowledge of who those agencies are, and we work quite frequently with them. And we practice developing those messages, translating them into appropriate languages, and disseminating them, and get them out to the people that need to uh, receive them. Do you think it's difficult, though, you mentioned immigrants, I mean, particularly in the climate in which we're operating right now, there's a lot of fear in immigrant populations, a lot of fear about perhaps getting help, particularly if they're not documented, if they're undocumented. Do you see that as an issue at all, where there could be segments of the population who contract this but don't get help or don't get treatment? I'm not so concerned about that, and I say that because... Uh, In my division, we run our tuberculosis control clinic, among other services that we have. And that clinic sees primarily immigrant populations who have tuberculosis. And so I think it really comes down to building our reputation as a health service provider agency. And so with some of the immigrant population that we interact with regularly, I think the relationships are very strong. Look into your crystal ball for me. (laughs) I know, it's a tough question. Everybody rolls their eyes. But just what you know about the spread of this so far and just what we're, we're beginning to see in this country, how bad do you think this is going to get? Yeah, it is hard to predict. And so looking at what happened in Wuhan City in Hubei Province, China, 
is helping us to kind of see how um, control strategies there may have affected the decrease that's happening there. So it looks like the massive outbreak that occurred there is really coming under control. So fewer new cases reported every day. And so looking at that, uh, it may be that um, extensive contact tracing, control of initial cases, delay of community transmission could have an impact. And other well-timed what we call social distancing strategies, so staying home if you're sick, avoiding large public gatherings if you're, say, somebody older with a chronic condition, might not be a good idea for somebody like that to participate in a mass crowded event, a rock concert, uh, going to a baseball game when the Phillies start to play, something like that. Those kind of strategies might help to limit people uh, from getting the disease and stop transmission. If protections in healthcare settings is robust and we don't see a lot of healthcare worker transmission, that's another good sign. And then I would say places where there are people that are vulnerable to this disease, and that would be nursing home residents. If, if we have good aggressive control strategies in those settings, then hopefully we won't see severe disease in people like that and deaths in people like that. So I do think, looking into the crystal ball, aggressive, coordinated public health response strategies led by us, uh, could really have a big impact on protecting people from getting the disease and ultimately limiting the number of people uh, who actually get the disease and how bad this might be when it's over in our country. It's a multi-pronged strategy. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) You're a busy man, I would think, these days. Never been busier. (laughs) (laughs) Dr. Alice, thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate it. Of course. All right, so the last thing that we did in trying to ask these questions about coronavirus to experts who really know the answers is figure out where we are with a vaccine. Uh, so we gave a call to Dr. David Weiner. Hi, doctor. Could you uh, introduce yourself for me and, and uh, tell me what you do for my, uh, my level check? Sure. My name is Dr. David Weiner. I'm um, Executive Vice President Director of the Vaccine and Immunotherapy Center at the Wistar Institute. All right. Well, you sound good to me, so I'm going to turn it over to Carol McKenzie now. Hi, Dr. Weiner. How are you? Okay. How are you? I'm well. Thank you so much for joining us. We appreciate it. I'm glad that Dr. Weiner is is working on this vaccine because uh, he has a, a conceptual grasp on many things that I don't. The spike protein is where the coronaviruses get their um, family name because they have sort of a crown or a halo from the spike, and that spike is important in binding to um, targets in the person who's going to be infected, us, and allowing entry of the pathogen. Yeah, I mean, he, you know, he was on a list of a top 40 most influential vaccine scientists in the world. He's done work on Zika, MERS, and Ebola. And he really kind of gets very, very deep into what they're looking at. But he really talked about how his work with MERS and the, the work they did with the protein with MERS has helped them with the COVID-19 because they have the same type of protein on the virus. And that's really key to development of the vaccine. We're in phase two with our first coronavirus, which is MERS. Okay. And that, that background we then used to understand approaches to COVID-19. And so we developed constructs focusing on at least two different antigens of 
COVID-19 based on genetic sequences. We created systems for expressing them. We then moved them into um, different animal models and um, saw our early immune responses. So the team is preparing to move this a single construct forward um, into the clinic in the next few months. He was talking about in April, they hope to get it in the first clinical trials, but we're talking about they tested in primates to see how they react and they look, you know, at all the reactions they could have, that takes time. And then if it proves safe in that group, in that clinical trial, then they, that they, he says, rapidly deployed to small focused impact trials. So you are talking about a process, and I did try to press him repeatedly on a timeline. And I think I think the thing is that the timeline depends on how well the vaccine does in these clinical trials. Yeah, we we just don't know. Right. And, and he, you know, through <laughs> a couple times you asked him, he sort of said, we have no idea when it's going to work. But as soon as it does work, what we're going to start making sure that it's out there doing some good. Right. Normally, vaccines, as you know, take decades to develop. They take several years before we have a way to move them into the clinic, and there's a lot of variabilities around them. And and my team with our collaborators have really focused on DNA medicine approaches really to rapidly move forward and eliminate a lot of the hurdles and uh, develop a process that's streamlined. As soon as people start to believe we're seeing that it's the first signs of effectiveness, while they're testing it, that's going to be in people who are at risk of infection, and that itself is going could start helping impact the outbreak. But to get through licensure and, and things like that, that's going to be a longer period of time. But I'm sort of providing a different window on where benefit might be seen um, in a more rapid fashion. Dr. Weiner, thank you so much for joining us here on In-Depth. We really appreciate it. Well, thank you so much. And good luck with everything. Thank you. There's a lot that goes into it. The guy's brilliant, obviously. Yeah. It would be cool if the vaccine came out of Philadelphia. It would be really cool if it did. KYW In-Depth is produced by Charlotte Reese. Our production coordinator is Ali Amato. Tom Rickard is the executive producer of KYW Original Podcasts. I'm Carol McKenzie. Make sure to subscribe to KYW In-Depth and help us get the word out by leaving a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts. Thanks for listening. We'll talk again next week.